everyone to our service this morning. Thank you for being here, being part of our service. We also want to welcome all of those that are uh, viewing our service online. Thank you for being part of that. Uh, if you would at this time, please take the friendship register at the end of the pew and pass it down the aisle so that we can have a record of everyone's attendance. We're here this morning to worship the Lord. Let's begin our time together in prayer. Our, our Father, creator of this universe, we come before you today to worship you, and we pray that our worship will be acceptable in your sight. 
Father, be with us as we try to be your people in this community. Help us to always reach forward and to show the love of Jesus to the community around us. Be with us during this time that we can study on your word. We're thankful for Ken and the message that he's going to bring to us this morning. All of these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First song this morning, number two, we praise the old God. Let's all sing together. We praise the old God for the Son of my
Would you bow with me? Father God in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and join our voices in song to lift praises to you, to lift up our souls to you, and to put the, the week that we've had behind us so that we can focus solely on you. Father God, I'm thankful for each one that has made an effort to be a part of this family, to join us together, and, my, and Father, we are mindful of those that are not able to be here with us at this moment, whether due to illness or sickness and or injury, Father, and we lift those up to you in prayer. We lift up to you Luther and Lynn and so many others that are on our hearts today, Father, that need your healing hand, that need us to help be a comfort to them as they battle whatever they are facing, Father. We pray for them to be able to join us once again soon. Father God, we lift up our hearts today that you will be with Ken as he opens up the word to us. May we have attentive ears. May we listen to what he has to say and, and take it into our hearts so that it may change us. May we be able to serve you better each and every day. Father God, we ask that you help us to be your hands and feet in this community, that we will reach out to those that are in need of you. Father God, so often we miss out on opportunities to to share your word and we pray that we will step out, that we will step out of our comfort zones, Father, and proclaim you boldly in this community. Father God, there's so much that this congregation does and we pray and we're thankful for each and every one that has a part in it. Father God, we pray that what we do is pleasing to you. Father God, help us always to focus on you, help us to always lift up the name of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. If you'd like to mark the invitation song, be number 911. 911. Our song before scripture reading the message this morning, number 432. 432. If it's convenient for you, we please stand for seconds.
Our scripture reading this morning coming from 2 Samuel 18, verses 33. 2 Samuel 18, verses 33. And we'll be reading from the King James Version. And the king was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, thus he said, O my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would God I had died for thee. O Absalom, my son, my son. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearers of his word. Good morning, everyone. You look beautiful sitting there all dressed up, your Sunday best. What a vision. Well, Anita and I, you may know, traveled to Charleston, South Carolina for a few days and saw our newest addition to our family. And well, we're just so excited about the prospect of that little Elijah. And Thank you for allowing us to go. Many of you are back, I guess, from trips for spring break and all that. It's just good to be back together as a family. But turns out that while I'm gone, just for a few days, things just fall to pieces. Now, Lynn Baragona is still recovering from what was supposed to be a simple procedure with her shoulder. And so we continue our supplications on her behalf. And then, first time you meet Luther, Mormon, he's probably going to pull out this photograph that was taken of him in his younger days when he actually worked as a chimney sweep. It's a picture that gained him a little bit of fame. He was up on the roof. He jumps up in the air and he clicks his heels together like he is a bird. That guy is so agile, wonderful on a roof until you fall off a roof, which he apparently has done several times, but this time it came with ill effect and he, he severely broke one wrist and fractured the other wrist. So he had one that had to have surgery. It's in a cast. The other is in a sling. He has some other milder injuries. But we, don't want, we want to pray for Luther and his recovery and also for Joan. Uh, you know, who else is going to pick up <laughs> all that work that Luther does? So I just, I pray that all is going to go well with them. And then turns out, Bobby Brazel went to the doctor and they gave him a list of things that could ail you. And he said, I'll take one of each. And so he has a lot of physical problems that are going on right now. And he's still waiting treatment for that. And then Sister Mary Ellen Johnson gave me this note. Her son, Mike, had a stroke and it has affected his eyesight. So the eye doctor sent him for a CAT scan. 
And when they were doing the CAT scan, they sent him on for an MRI and they found out that he has a tumor. They don't know yet what the plan is about dealing with that tumor. He hasn't got an appointment for the next doctor yet, but we are prayerful that all of that's going to work out okay. And, you know, it's, I mean, I hate that he had the stroke, but apparently the stroke and its complication led him, and they were able to discover what potentially could be even a worse situation. So I'm thankful that he got the attention he needed. But we're going to pray for these folks. There are others who are suffering among us that we are continually praying about and aware of. And I can't help every time my eye goes across the audience, I see some of you sitting there and I know what you're struggling with. But I I just want to thank you for being here, for the commitment that you've made to be a part of this family and the effort that you go to to encourage others. It's a beautiful thing. Let's pray together and then we will open God's word. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this day that you've given us. Thank you for our health and strength. Thank you for the freedom that we enjoy. All the things that come together to make possible our assembly here today. And I pray, Father, that it will have been worthwhile for all of us that we will have been intentional in our worship of you, lifting you to the highest point we can possibly lift you, to have our hearts, minds, souls, all of our being focused intently upon worshiping you in spirit and in truth. Thank you for all these avenues of worship that we've enjoyed thus far. And I pray you'll bless us now as we're about to open up your word. But Father, just to remove some of these distractions We have some things that are on our hearts. We would just like to lay aside for a few moments, knowing that you're in control of all things. And we pray your blessings upon these that we've mentioned. Bless Luther Mormon and his recovery. Bless Bobby Brazel, that he can recover and get treatment he needs. Be with Lynn as she is struggling with her health right now. We pray she'll have a full recovery. And we pray your blessings on Mike Johnson as he's had the stroke and now uh, discovered even more concerning problems. We just pray, Lord, that all these and so many other issues can be resolved. But Lord, in this time, help us trusting you for these requests to just set our minds and our hearts on what you have for us today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for its honesty. Thank you for its direction, its encouragement. Lord, help us in response to it to act. Help us to truly embody your truths and not to be swayed from it. To do our very best, not only to see to our own salvation, but Lord, to those who are within our circle of influence, especially in our families. And Lord, I pray you'll forgive us when we do not enact our due diligence in regard to our children or our grandchildren or even our great-grandchildren. Help us to realize our own faults before it's too late and, and then 
to do our very best to make right situations that have gone so terribly wrong. Help me, Lord, today to communicate these things that are on my heart and be with those who hear them, that they'll be impactful to their life, that you, through your word, can give us the direction we need to live a life in the knowledge that we've done all that we could to affect good things in the lives of those in our influence. In Jesus' name, amen. There are a couple of passages of Scripture that when you read them, they tear at your heart. They do mine. And there are a couple that I want to share with you today, one of which was the text that was read just a moment ago. Maybe, I don't know, if you were going to judge them, I'd say maybe the, maybe the most heart-rending passage is as Jesus is on the cross. There are seven sayings, but there's one that is very, very personal between the Father and the Son. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have, why have you forsaken me? Now, that's quite a moment, isn't it? Can understand why the world forsook him can even begin to understand a little bit about why all those disciples who were so close to Jesus forsook him. Even the disciple that Jesus loved, all had forsaken, but as close as he had been to all of them, it was that relationship with the Father that is the most poignant, the most painful. You know, of all, why have you forsaken me. And then the other one that just tears at my heart anyway is this one from 2 Samuel 18 verse 33. When David had committed his sin with Bathsheba, there were a lot of consequences that came from that. And one consequence that came revealed itself in the rebellion of David's son, Absalom. Absalom literally tried to take the kingdom away from his own father and did some heinous, unspeakable kinds of things in order to try to wrest the kingdom out of his father's grip and nearly succeeded until what is reflected here in this text happened. Absalom Absalom has died. But instead of, you know, rejoicing that the kingdom is saved as so many others, no doubt, very privately did, David is just overwhelmed with emotion. And it's not just this verse. Several verses within this context indicate that David just kept saying the same thing over and over and over again. My son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only, 
I could have died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, over and over and over and over again. David is crying out these words that cannot affect any change whatsoever. He isn't, I don't think, saying these words simply because his son has died. I think he's saying these words this way because of the circumstances of his death. If he could just have waited, Absalom was actually in line to receive the kingdom. Just a natural succession. But he would not have it that way. And so he sinned against his king, he sinned against his nation, he sinned against God. And now, it's not just a king who is reflecting on an adversary. It it is a father's grief over the sin-sick, now unchangeable situation with a son. I ask you, as you are raising your children, or maybe some of you have already raised your children now, You have grandchildren. Some of you, I know, have great-grandchildren. And if you have beyond that, then this would affect you too. Everybody that we love, those within our circle of influence, within our family, those whose lives are the most important to us, the people that we want to see saved to go to heaven with us. I ask you, what, what is the worst possible thing that could happen? Is it death? Now, I've seen some of you experience that very thing. And I hear people say it is not natural for a parent to bury their child, and and it isn't. And I've seen some of the greatest pain and agony. And it's... It's poignant. It's, it's powerful. It's hard to describe. I, I know you can't describe it, but us standing outside looking at it, we just, we want to help. We don't even know how to deal with that, that heavy pain that you experience. So is death, is that something that's so hard to bear? Is that the worst Let's step back from that a moment because that is powerful. Some people, it seems, think that the worst thing would be, well, I I raised my children, you know, I I get them the very best education I can. I actually moved into this certain place so that they could get into this school district or I paid the money in order to, you know, get the tuition to put them in this prestigious school. I've done everything that I could to get them the education that will make them successful. So now they've graduated high school, they got that that prestigious 
acceptance to the college, and then they wasted it. And we think, what? This is just the most humiliating, awful thing that could ever happen. Is, is that it? They dropped the ball on their education. Is that the worst thing? Or we, we raise our children, you know, we, we put a ball in their hand even before they can walk. And we have visions of them becoming professional athletes. And so we, we take them to the t-ball or to all of those lower grade um, sports activities. We get them the best coaches. No, we don't want them on this team. We want this coach to select them because they're considered the best. And boy, they just have all this athletic potential. And then we get them into the travel ball and we spend lots and lots of money and lots and lots of time to get them physically capable. They get to high school, they excel, and we take the videos and we send out all of the resumes, the information to trying to get them this great scholarship because we know if we can get them the scholarship in just the right school that maybe professional teams will see them and they'll have it made for life. And then... They tear an ACL or they just totally get burnt out in the sport. Or maybe they weren't quite the athlete we thought they were. And they don't make it as far as we had anticipated. And we think with all that time and money and effort and hope spent... That has got to be the worst thing that could happen to my child. Or let's say everything goes well and they get out of the home, they get married, they start their business, but their marriage fails or their business fails. And we say that is the worst thing that could possibly happen. I just can't believe it. Are these things the worst? Death, not getting the right progress on their education or their athletics or successful marriage, profitable business. Is that the worst thing that could happen? In Matthew chapter 16, verse 26, Scripture asks a question. What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Listen, I'm telling you, there is nothing worse for you and your child than for that child to leave the Lord and lose their own soul. So what can I do about that? You know, I, don't, I don't want that grief. I do not want to be in that same category of David crying after a son with whom now there is no hope at all. I don't want to be that parent who is grieving, not just over the death or the failure of a child, but over their sin-sick soul. 
I don't want to be that parent who finds themselves at some point feeling no hope. What can I do about it? What can I do if my child leaves the church? What can I do if my child is not interested in spiritual things? What can I do to avoid the very worst thing happening? Well, I want to start with just talking generally about what we should already be doing. And and I would call it just simply this, train up a child. You have heard that since you've heard anything related to raising or bringing up your children, right? Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. That is a text, a proverb, that many of us hold on to just with with the very, very nails of our fingers as we feel our relationship slipping away. We just get the idea, if I could lay the the groundwork, if I could encourage my children while they're young and just get the Lord in them, just infuse my own spiritual journey into their life, that maybe, just maybe, even if they go off a little bit, eventually they'll come back to it. And I've heard a lot of discussions and the turning and the twisting of phrases in this text to try to make it something that it isn't. This text is just a proverb. A proverb is a statement of fact that is generally true. It isn't a promise that if you'll do this, you will get this outcome. It's a general observation. And the general observation is this. If you'll do your best to train them in the right way, then even if they do go astray, even if they get on the wrong track, they'll still remember their upbringing. And the hope is then if they go astray, maybe they'll remember the truths that they learned when they were young and they'll come back to the Lord. And more often than not, that works. But sometimes it doesn't. I think about the emphasis that folks who originally heard this statement made upon the rearing of their own children. For instance, the Israelites were very serious about developing the faith in their children from the very beginning. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 7, 8, and 9 is a continuation of the idea that Moses was instructing the people with. Not only were they to give due diligence in their own understanding and application of the law of Moses, but he said, now you are also going to teach them diligently to your children. You're going to speak of them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. They're going to be as signs on your hands and as frontlets between your eyes. You're going to write them on the doorposts of the house and the gate. In other words, wherever you are, whatever it is that you are doing, in order for your children to be instructed to the fullest degree, in order to try to ensure that they're going to know the Lord and that they're going to carry on with it through their adulthood, you're going to infuse them with the Word of God right now. So everywhere they look in their life with you, they're going to hear or they are going to read the Word of God. It is just going to be everywhere. That's a great start. Just have the Word of God in their presence continually. They hear us speaking it. They see it written 
verses everywhere. That's wonderful. In the book of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, we kind of get the mechanism of that transference of knowledge. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long in the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Colossians chapter 3, verse 21 says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest you cause them to become heartless, spiritless. You take the heart right out of them. These texts remind us that, yeah, you know, there is incentive, children. If you obey your parents, it's going to be good for you. Uh, you're going to live long. It's best to, you know, listen to those instructions because they'll not do you wrong. And if you follow it, most likely things are going to go great. But fathers, you're going to help manage this situation if you'll just train them with the thought that I want to instruct them and bring them along so that they can enjoy those things. I want to train them in the, in the teaching, in the admonition of the Lord. I don't, as Colossians 3, 21 says, I don't want to take the heart out of them. Okay. So I want to give the word of God, but I want to package it in such a way as it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. They see it. They experience it. And then I want to redouble my efforts by reminding my children that this is the right way and God has blessings in it. And then I want to continue teaching them. The head of that household is going to be responsible to it. And it's not surprising, I guess, then, with such an emphasis and importance upon the training of children that even when it comes to leadership in the church, the bishop or the elder in the church, he is, he is identified in the qualifications given in two different places. One, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, and also in Titus chapter 1 and verse 6, the description is given with more emphasis than any other qualification, the importance of the father raising those children in the home. He's supposed to be one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man doesn't know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Wow, there's some pressure, right? You'll know if this man is qualified to lead the church by what you see in his relationship with his children. And then over there in Titus 1 and verse 6, even more specific, he describes those children as being faithful, meaning that he has encouraged them in their relationship with the Lord itself, having become Christians who are not accused of dissipation, which is excess, or insubordination, which is rebellion. In the New Testament scriptures, even when, I'm just going to assume since he's not mentioned that there wasn't a father in the picture, but even when there wasn't a father in a picture, understand that the raising of those children was so important that whoever could participate in it was involved. I want my children to be saved. I want them to grow up to know the Lord. So Paul would say of Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 that he had known the scriptures from his youth. Well, how is that? Is it because he stumbled upon it? 
You know, I have a friend who says that he actually had gotten a hold of the Good News Bible and was reading through it, had no instruction throughout his youth about the Bible at all. He just was reading that book. And he came through the reading of the Good News Bible to know that he needed to obey the gospel. I mean, that's a powerful story. But we don't want everyone to have to stumble upon the truth, do we? Of course not. Not if I'm a parent. I want my children to know. In Timothy's case, how is it that he had known the scriptures, had grown in them, had developed the faith that he had? How is it that he came to that place from childhood to adulthood? Well, if you go back to chapter 1 and verse 5, you find out that the faith was established first in his grandmother Lois. And then in his mother Eunice, and Paul says, I'm persuaded it's in you now, Timothy. Somebody, somebody cared enough about their child, Lois for Eunice, and then Eunice for Timothy, to see to it that not just that they knew the truth, but that the truth developed a sustaining faith in them. So if, if I want to avoid what it is that David was grieving over here, I would want to, I want to train up the child. I want to be sure that my children, those within my circle of influence, have that foundation. They know the truth. But what, what if... I've done that. You know, Ken took them to all the church services, had scriptures all through the house, maybe on little framed pictures on the walls, even had bumper stickers on the car. Wore the T-shirts, you know, from youth rallies and stuff. Had scripture on them, on the back. Promoted everything I knew to promote related to Jesus Seemed like everything was going well, but now they've left home and it cannot be said as it was of Timothy that my faith is now in them. What, what, what do I do now? Can I want my child back? One thing you can do, maybe the most obvious thing of all, is to pray about it. I'm going to guess. <laughs> I'm going to guess you already have that one covered. And, you know, we look at some passages about prayer and sometimes we just try to, try to explain what they mean and try to put them into perspective. But there is a text, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Sometimes we treat that way, but I'm going to think that a parent who has a child who has left the faith knows exactly what this text means. You know where it says to pray without ceasing? I'm going to guess that if you have a child who was raised in the church, who knows better, but they have left the faith, I'm going to think that that is the number one thing on your heart all the time. 
You know exactly what that text means, to pray without ceasing. Yeah, Ken, uh, there, there's a lot of ways that I stay in contact with the Lord, but it is like a 24-hour, seven days a week, 365 days a year, every day, every night concern. I want my child back. What do you pray for? You know, we can be very simplistic in our prayers and just simply say, Lord, you know, Change my child's heart. Make them come back. The Lord isn't going to make your child do anything. He's not going to overwhelm anybody's free will. Maybe, maybe we pray that Proverbs 22.6 comes into play. Remind them of what they know. Or, or maybe we pray that the Lord will bring somebody into their life that can affect that change. Maybe you can't do it. Maybe, maybe there's something about the faith that maybe now you represent in them and they just won't have it. But Lord, whatever it takes to bring my child back. I pray, but oftentimes I, I would blame myself. Yeah. What did I do, what did I not do? How about, how about let's don't do that? How about let's don't blame ourselves? I'm thinking about Ezekiel 18 verse 20. This first thing's going to sound harsh because it says that the soul who sins dies. But the point of that isn't you sin, condemnation, you die. Not, it's not like that. It is that you, whoever you are, are responsible for your actions. You have sinned. You are responsible for that. He goes on to say that the son doesn't bear the guilt of the father, nor does the father bear the guilt of the son. Righteousness upon the righteous and wickedness upon the wicked. You get what you deserve. So back up from it for a moment and don't take all that responsibility to yourself. You're supposed to be a part of the solution. Don't take on the guilt that is, that is not yours, but rather maybe help to identify, I don't know, some of what caused this situation in the first place. And be sure that you keep communication open. And what I mean by communication reflects in what we talked about as we were raising those children. You know, we're going to have the Word of God everywhere. There is a principle in Scripture that is akin to the idea of planting seeds. Luke chapter 8 verse 11 says that that's exactly what the Word of God is. It is the seed. So how would I want to communicate with my child you know, I'm not looking to alienate them any further if they've left the church or they've left the faith in some way or they're not doing their due diligence in the faith. Maybe they're just struggling with their faith right now. I don't want to add a burden on top of that. Nevertheless, what do I want to do? I want to continue to sprinkle those seeds. I want to be certain that the Word of God is still being infused in their life. And... For your part, be sure that you remain faithful. Hey, listen, I've seen this happen a lot. A child becomes unfaithful, but instead of really trying to redeem the child, 
they then begin to become influenced by the child. Their faith becomes weakened. Don't, don't let that happen to you. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. That isn't a text that only applies to the church going after those who have gone astray. Well, wouldn't that just as equally apply to me as I'm trying to seek the restoration of my own child? Certainly so. Do it with a sense of gentleness, but also a sense of urgency, knowing that someone's soul is at stake here. And I don't want to become infected with what has caused them to stumble. And I don't want to just give license to the wrong choices that have been made on their part. I also need to try to strive to clear up any misunderstandings. Here's something that Paul said in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 16. Actually, it's a question to those who had been faithful but had been swayed by Judaizers. Now Paul is trying to bring about logical arguments to take them from their Judaizing back to the truth of the gospel. And here he's starting to feel like folks are getting the wrong idea. Paul asks, have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? You know, first of all, let's understand that I love you. I care about you. So I'm trying to... to influence or, or spark or encourage thoughts of the church and your faithfulness, not because I feel I'm right over you or, or I want to dominate your life. I care about you. I want to see you saved. So am I the enemy now simply because I'm sharing the truth with you because I want you back? Of course, the answer is no. But we need to clear up that misunderstanding. Sometimes we get so frustrated and upset, maybe we say things we should never have said. Create a worse situation. Let's back up. If that's a sinful situation, let's repent of what we have said and let's do something to make right the misunderstandings for the purpose of bringing a soul back. And have you tried this? How about just... Invite them back, <laughs> you know. Some folks, when you speak to them, say, you are the first person in the last however long that said anything to me about coming back. You know, for whatever reason, a person drifts away from the family of God and they're just languishing out there. They don't even really know how they got in this situation and now they're just ashamed. Many times people will say, you're the first person to ever come to me about this. Just been waiting for someone to extend a lifeline. Maybe that's, maybe that's your child. Maybe just encourage attendance a little along at first. But at least letting them know that that's something that matters to you. You want, you want to see them back. How about being a conduit? through which good things flow. That's how it was done in the beginning, right? That's the great commission to be the conduit. We know the truth. Now we want to share that with somebody else. In Mark 16, verse 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will save. He who does not believe will be condemned. Go do it. 
So the idea is, yeah, I feel it, but I've got this wall here. I just want to penetrate that. I want to create more problems. What's the worst problem? What's the worst that could happen? You offend them or they become upset or lose their soul. Our desire is to see our family saved. So I need to be a conduit through which these good things flow. I also need to have the attitude that I will never give up. Never. I'm going to hang on to hope. The Apostle Paul, whose job it was to carry the gospel to the Gentiles, never gave up hope for his own people. In Romans chapter 10, he says, My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. I, I just think, he's saying, I just think if I could get the truth to them or if somebody could get the truth to them, that they would respond to it. I just hold out hope that that is true. I know how he felt because of what he said in the previous chapter. Romans chapter 9 verse 3. He says, I would rather be accursed than to see my brethren lost. Separated from Christ. Now, I'm not sure that he is making the declaration I would lose my soul for them. But certainly he is laying his life out there. Take my life if you need to. As long as my people are saved. That's quite a commitment. And be patient. This thing probably didn't happen in a moment. And it's probably not going to be resolved in a moment. Colossians 3 verse 21 again. Fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged, disheartened, have the spirit taken out of them. I don't want to create a worse situation by just unloading the whole bag on them. I want to be patient because my goal is to bring my child back. I want them back. And be understanding. <laughs> okay. I, I'm thinking, wait, be understanding. I don't understand. I, I don't. I don't understand how somebody could have tasted my own faith. I mean, I shared that with them their whole life. And I know how committed I am. I don't understand how they could turn away from it. But look at Acts chapter 17. Paul didn't understand these cities that he went into and some of their reactions to the gospel. Nevertheless, he framed the message of the gospel for the situation. Very different to the Thessalonians, as to the Bereans, as to the Athenians. Same gospel message but the delivery was different. What will work for one person might not work for another person. When it comes to my child, I want to be sure that the vehicle I choose is going to be appropriate to bringing them back and not to pushing them away. There has to be a great deal of understanding. Try to understand where they're coming from. I should also see if I can't enlist some other people to help me. Just as I mentioned a moment ago, maybe there's some barrier between us that's created this issue, but others don't have that problem. Maybe somebody else could touch their heart for Jesus. 
In Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, we're to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Maybe we can help one another in the restoration of our children. And then finally, how about this? How about no matter what, as long as we both live and breathe, that we are going to have unconditional love. I am going to love my child and my grandchild and my great-grandchild and however far it goes, my reach. I'm going to love them unconditionally. I'm going to love them whether they love me back or love the Lord back because my goal is not just the now. My goal is as long as I live and breathe. My goal is for eternity. So I'm going to do through love whatever it is that I can to keep that door, that opportunity alive. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning at verse 4, that love suffers long and is kind. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And in verse 8 he says, love never fails. In Psalm 127 and verse 3, that scripture says that children are a heritage from the Lord. And the fruit of the womb is a reward. The word heritage there means that you have something that has been placed in your care, something that you protect, that has been given to you. It's all yours. The Lord himself has given you your children for you to take. What he's given you is a life that will never end. Eternity is in your hands. And in the short time that you have to mold them, you are striving to mold them for eternity. In Luke chapter 15, there are three stories about retrieval. But the final story is the story you probably remember as the story of the prodigal son. Here's a father who has two sons, the youngest of which says that he wants what's coming to him and he takes it. He leaves home, he goes into a far off country and he spends everything that he has, his entire inheritance on wasteful or the word that we use, prodigal living. Eventually, thankfully, he comes to himself and he remembers his past. But he doesn't think I'll be restored as a son for what I've done. I'd be lucky to be restored as a servant. But he goes back to his father. His father meets him on the road. But there is a beautiful statement for us that's found in verse 24 of that text. The father says, this my son was dead and is alive Again, he was lost and now he is found. Maybe you know all too well the pain that David spoke of in our text today. 
But what is the worst thing that could happen? If that's something you're struggling with, I'm going to say you're probably not alone. What we could do is the first thing I encouraged you to do, we could pray about it. And we could encourage one another in it. Wouldn't it be great to have a, all these rows filled with people wanting the family to pray that they'll have success in reaching their child? I want to go to heaven, but I want my children to go to heaven too. Let's be committed to do whatever it takes to bring them back to Jesus. Maybe, maybe you're not a child of God yet. Today can give you an opportunity if you're that child that went astray. Today, what rejoicing it would bring all of us, all of us who are already conditioned to receive you back, the joy and celebration we would have to see you come back to the Lord. If you need to obey the gospel, you've learned the truth, you're here today. Perhaps that parent has spent all their effort trying to encourage you to obedience today. Once you take that step, believing Jesus is the Son of God, turning away from your sin, confessing your faith, you'd be buried in water right here in this moment to have your sins washed away, rise in newness of life. What joy and celebration. Is there anybody who needs to respond? Why don't you come while you need to, uh, while we stand together and sing.
unto thee, O Lord. Do I lift up my Lord's Supper will sing night with Evan Pena.
take this moment to observe the Lord's commandment to remember his death on the cross. As the ushers have come forward, if you have not received an emblem, please raise your hand and they will assist you. In the book of John, it's interesting, it starts out. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. I read that because just a few days later, well, in the context of the book, Jesus performs about five miracles. And toward the end, he, the word has gotten out and he's, he's fed the 5,000. So word is out. They're following him. And then after he walks on water, being the fifth miracle that he did, they went looking for him. Uh, they didn't find him. Finally, when they got to him, they, they asked, when did you get here? And Jesus answered and said, uh, truly, I knew you were looking for me because not, you saw, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. In this life, we want to know what's good for us today, right? That's the reason why I went back and read, in the beginning was the word. So when they were asking about these miracles, and they wanted to know, what signs are you going to show us now? I don't know what signs they were looking for. I don't know if they were looking for the 16th seed to win the tournament. What sign could it have been? What kind of crazy sign would it have been? They were already following. At this point, he, had, he told them about the bread that saved uh, their ancestors in the, in, in the wilderness. And finally, when he said, uh, he, he told them that he gave them this bread from heaven to eat. And they said, sir, give us this bread also. Or give us this bread always. And then Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Toward the end of the chapter, I think this is where it kind of comes into the Lord's Supper and why it's so important that we do this. After they were arguing amongst themselves, and they were going, how can this man give us flesh to eat? And I understand their confusion at that moment, but we don't have to worry about that confusion now. So Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life's life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is the true blood and my blood is the true drink the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me I believe that's why we do this every week we need it right we need to be reminded that the reason why we observe the Lord's Supper that Jesus yes died 
on the cross and it was very bloody and the torment that he went through. But let us not forget that in the beginning was the word. That word was Jesus and he gave us everything that we need to know for eternal life. And through his sacrifice on the, on the cross for our sins, we have that hope. Also remember that the word of God is perfect without blemish. And then when Christ was beaten on the cross it became very bloody. There's so much symbolism in, in that what Jesus does for us. He tries to make these things aware for us so that we will remember. But will we just be here just for something for today? Or will we be here for something for what's yet to come? And I gotta do the other part. <laughs> Oh, it's, I set it down a little bit. Sorry. Let's go to God in prayer as we thank Him for the bread. Heavenly Father, we come to you today thanking you for your Son, thanking you for the word that you have given us that we may know what we need to do to live with you forever. Heavenly Father, as we partake of this emblem of bread today that we honor your son's life on this earth and his willingness to give himself up for us that we might live forever. Please be with us as we partake of this memorial. This is in your son's name we pray, amen. Let's continue our thanks for the cup. In like manner, Father, we ask your blessings on this fruit of the vine, which represents Christ's blood that was shed for all the sins of the world, that through his death and resurrection, we also too may die to this world and be raised in newness of life so that we can live with you in heaven. This is our prayer in your son's name. Amen. This has concluded the Lord's Supper. Let us pray. Our most gracious and loving Father, we bow before Thee with grateful hearts, Father, so grateful of all the many blessings <clears throat> that You bestow upon us each and every day. Father, we're so thankful for the blessings of life, for the material blessings. Father, we're just so thankful for the demonstration of all those who have given that we may continue <clears throat> 
our mission efforts, Father, a benevolence program. We just pray, Father, that we'll always be the wise and faithful stewards of all that you've entrusted upon us. We pray, Father, now that we will give freely and cheerfully. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. tonight at Foot Street and uh, that starts at 6 so we're going to leave here about time for Bible class be starting so around 515 uh, bus will be leaving from the tag to go to Foot Street good morning we're so happy for you to be here at the Boomville Church of Christ this morning if you're visiting with us please come back at any opportunity you may have we had 284 this morning in services. If everybody has saw their program, we have several announcements there. Uh, there is a change. There's a change for the eighth grade puppet team. They will meet after services this morning. In the TAC, lunch will be provided. Also, the landmark nursing home service is today at four and Boonville Church is in charge. The senior rally will be at the Henderson Church of Christ on Saturday, March the 25th. The bus will leave at 8.30. Please sign the list if you plan to go. And then JT Beard's neighbor Larry Gamble passed away yesterday. That's all the additional announcements I have. If you will stand, I'll lead us in a closing prayer. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for you for this Lord's Day, for the ability and the reason that we're here Help us to never give up on our brothers and sisters who may be astray. Let us have unconditional love for them and continually pray for them to come home. Thank you for all you do for us. 
We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.